also say a toe to so. You know what? A toe to so. A fucking a toe to so. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to this. Uh, I believe it is a free, yes, it's a free episode of Bottleman. It is, once Ooh. again, myself, Riley, and I am joined by my able co-host, Dan. Dan, how's it going? Hello. I'm good. I'm uh, currently, I've, I've left the uh, fetid south, and I'm currently back in the uh, beautiful, crisp northeast uh, at an undisclosed location high above Manhattan. <laughs> That's right. He's staying in the Statue of Liberty, folks. I am staying in the Statue of Liberty's left yeah, eye. That's a, the number one hotel room in New York. Only in New York, baby. Yeah. 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 It's uh, $15 if you want internet that uh, does anything except for load emails. It's, it's very exclusive. Yeah, he's, he's up there. He's having, a, he's having a hot dog with the Safdie brothers in the Statue of Liberty. Uh, he's being sold a bridge. Uh, and... yeah. Uh, to help us uh, make sense of some things that are going on in the economy, uh, we have, of course, brought on uh, Alex Skaggs of uh, Barron's, not here in a professional capacity, of course, who will be offering legally binding investment advice. Alex, how's it going? Financial advice for all. <laughs> so many stock picks just for you guys. Um, yeah, right across the river here. Um, I hope you enjoy paying $15 to breathe the air. It's... Such Especially a, in Manhattan. It's so pleasant. It's such a pleasure. I love to pay $28 for a, an Israeli couscous salad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is, this is, I was going to say, this is, this is Eric Adams's New York, you know, you get, you get a, a popper with every salad, but it's all $50. It's like kind of reverse That's Bloomberg. Right. <laughs> and then you're actually required to high five a police officer on your way out of the bodega. Exactly. So just so you know, you will be arrested if you do not high five a police officer. All, all, all the cops are strippers. All the strippers are cops. This is Adams's reality. <laughs> Getting sent to the tombs for refusing to do the Dougie with the cop at the bodega. <laughs> uh, this Love it, baby. Bing bong, as they these say. These teenagers refuse to tactically hoop with me, which is probable cause. Uh, I, <laughs> I'm going kinetic. <laughs> um, no, so we're uh, the look, I, I think sometimes, you know what? Um, the, uh, the, the economy, it's been too regular for the last couple of years. Uh, prices have been very stable. Um, very, everything's been very predictable. Um, uh, you know, I wouldn't say policymakers have made uh, you know, glaring missteps uh, that have uh, led to, you might say, a very um, uh, uh, rickety and um, uh, slipshod uh, international trade and finance regime that is going to lead to uh, a lot of people's lives uh, being a lot worse and a lot uh, a small number of people getting immeasurably richer. Uh, no, because that is not the kind of thing that happens. But in case it was, just in case, just in for case. example, um, we'd built a kind of uh, infrastructure uh, to um, that would not be able to withstand, say, events in the news. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what that might be like if, for example, um, a once-in-a-generation pandemic and a uh, sort of major war in Europe uh, coincided uh, with this period of what you might call very few options left for economic policymakers. Um, so this is one of the things we're going to be talking to Alex about. We're also going to be sort of wrapped up in a, okay, well, where were we? 
what all, all of these sort of ex, sort of you might say very um, punitive uh, sanctions that have been announced on Russia uh, by sort of most of the sort of uh, uh, Western most Western economies, um, and how have those sort of where did those come from? How did they circle back into sort of domestic economic impacts? How are they going to impact other people in sort of third countries or in Russia? And then we're going to talk a little bit about the history of how they came to be. However, before we go into that, I am once again yes. putting on my little helmet that says it's time to talk about the Canadian housing market. Because as anyone who listens to this show will know, I, I'm i obsessed with it. It's my one North Star of the things. It's your North Star. Yeah, exactly. It's my nor- North Star because it's a great name for real estate investment trust. So, you know. That's true. You're listening. <laughs> North Star uh, Properties has uh, over 10,000 rental units in Markham. Uh, none of them are occupied. The, North Star bread fixing and affordable housing. Yeah. Oh yeah, we're we're imagining one Canadian's uh, one Canadian maple zaibatsu uh, owned by Galen Weston and owns all the things. It fixes every price. Uh, but no, so basically, right as to, to as a little refresher about the Canadian housing market, it is uh, the the one problem every Canadian political party promises to solve, and uh, it seems that nothing can bring it down in price. Um, but uh, it looks as though the Bank of Canada is going to very slightly raise interest rates uh, in response to all of those current events I mentioned earlier. So I want to turn to our guest, Alex. Can you give a little bit just of a refresher to our listeners about um, how the relationship between decisions around interest rates and whether or not you can have a house. Yeah. So apparently, uh, I, I will say I was um, I have a Canadian contact who, for compliance reasons, can't be named on this, even though I wanted to. And he gave me the the whole rundown of um, how those two things are connected in Canada. And it's a pretty interesting contrast with the United States, because here in the U.S., you get a mortgage. It's a fixed rate for 30 years. That's it. You can refinance if rates go down, but you don't have to pay more unless you're taking on a new mortgage. Um, in Canada, apparently things are very different. That's right. Um, <laughs> yeah. I saw it and it's funny because I was looking at my little chat box and they said uh, five-year fixed rate or variable rate mortgages. And I said, oh, no. <laughs> because, <laughs> sorry, I just like laughed into my microphone um, because it's that different. Um, Basically, that means that as rates go up, as the bond, as the bond, as the Bank of Canada starts buying fewer bonds and reducing its pace of bond purchases, interest rates in Canada will go up and people will pay more for housing almost right away. Um, His estimate was like, okay, like 30% of mortgage holders will see an immediate um, an immediate rise in the cost of their financing their homes, which is pretty notable. So, so for him, like the kind of this, you know, very smart Canadian friend of mine, uh, the, the ultimate implication is that the bank of Canada will not be able to raise rates as far as say the fed or as they think Mm -hmm. they're going to, because the housing market is going to slow down faster um, it's probably not going to like kill it or it's not going to like turn into a U.S. 2008-2007 situation for for reasons that I, you guys can probably talk about. But um, 
but it will definitely hit the brakes more quickly than it would say here in yeah. the U.S. Right. And, and the way, so just even to make it a little more um, sort of clear, right? I was to make it a little more like granular. Uh, it's that like when it comes to sort of that people are going to be paying more for their houses, but also people on the margins are going to be priced out of being able to buy certain houses at certain prices, which means that there will be fewer houses, fewer buyers per house at, at given prices because it's more expensive to get a loan. Um, and so as yeah. such, there's not going to be enough as much support as there was under the current prices. And the, the, I guess the, the question is, right, the thing that keeps, if the prices go down a little bit, the thing that keeps um, uh, Canadian house prices high is the belief among, just a shared belief among enough people investing in them that they're like, you know, gold dust, that they're a magical commodity, a magical thing that yeah. never goes down. <laughs> It's essentially it's essentially Abby Hoffman uh, levitating uh, the White House with the yippies. Like they have to believe it's happening. And so, and if the spell is broken, well, Riley, it's a good thing for Canadians that that the real estate market isn't like a enormous linchpin of this uh, economy that is definitely tied to uh, uh, material uh, materialism. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Right, it's perfect. Like, it, the great thing that it's so long as it never goes down, <laughs> basically. <laughs> <laughs> then everything's oh, no. fine because that's like so much of what the, the current political sentiment settlement rather kind of sits on is just this idea that look, it's fine. Get your get on the housing ladder, pay your mortgage, and then your retirement or your life is just going to be financed by the next generation buying it from you at whatever price it is. Sort of just ratcheted upward by the cmhc so like yeah and and and, and, low, and, that, and also you know that, these pervasive low interest rates but then like because and that's 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 another thing that sort of always seemed funny and i sort of turn back to alex to this one right is that is it, it how is that sort of it seems like the people who are deciding sort of you know how much money goes into the economy who gets who gets what and so on and so on who've dis- made the decision since 2008 that they're just going to flood the economy with cheap that the entire economy with cheap money and that's going to go mostly just to the people at the top um through asset price inflation all this stuff um it, they sort of look at um these sort of you know both relatively like catastrophic events in terms of like um, you know the ability to buy and ship things, the, this, these huge supply bottlenecks, threats to future supply, jacking up prices, and their first is they can, can you like? It seems to me that their first um, instinct is to say, "Up, oh, there's too much confidence in the economy. We got to slow this thing down." Seems like the <laughs> old, that's the only lever they have to push on, and I've ne- that's never really made sense to me. I don't know. Yeah, and the funny thing is that like the pandemic and the sort of uh, you know, global response to the pandemic should, especially in the U.S., like should be a sign that like there are more ways to control inflation than just raising interest rates, mm-hmm. right? Because like, what is the difference between coming out of the pandemic and coming out of, say, the U.S. financial crisis? Oh, it was that during the pandemic, Congress acted and like spent a fuck ton of money letting people like actually live, which is nice. Um but like now that that's happened, they're like, oh, Congress's hands is tied. Surely they can't do anything about this. And it's like, OK, well, like what? How does that make any sense at all? You know, like it's it's and the thing is, as um, you know, central bankers themselves even say like their tools are extremely mm-hmm. blunt. 
Their tools are basically, we're going to slow down the economy. And what happens when you slow down the economy is that the most vulnerable people end up losing their jobs and can't buy as much. Well, and the, and like, and the ceiling of who is vulnerable keeps raising, you know, like, like, yeah. uh, it's, it's like a great sifting out people <laughs> into a, into a giant, uh, void of like the have nots. Uh, and I think, you know, just, I mean, I'm not as anywhere near as well versed as, as you, Alex, or you Riley on, on like the, the granular nature of, of, of what we're talking about. But I have noticed that in my immediate peer group and my group of friends in, uh, in Montreal, which notoriously has had like the lowest rents in Canada for, you know, the best value for money. I would say if you want to live in a major city and you want to have a space to work and a space to live and pay what I think is a reasonable amount of money you can do, you could do that in Montreal, but that's all out the window now during, during the pandemic, there's been, just massive unchecked rise in rental prices because of this increase uh, increase in real estate and this sort of flight of capital into real estate. I mean, so do you know what? Do you want to know what how what's really going to bake your noodle? Right? Is that by keeping? I lo- I don't know if I want my well, noodle baked, buddy. Baked, I'm sorry. Uh, Damn which it. is that if you hey if you keep interest rates super low and you inflate the value of assets, house prices go up and rents frequently also go up. If you then raise interest rates, causing, as Alex said, like 30% of Canadian um, mortgage holders, uh, their mortgage to rise, guess what also rises? Yeah, man. (laughs) Rents go up either way, man. My land, my fucking landlord coming to my house and not saying it, he just knocking on the door and then turning his pockets out and moths flying out and then sticking his hand out. Yeah, sorry. This <laughs> Fuck off. The central bank did anything. I'm afraid that means your rent is going up. Yeah, um, but yeah I guess. Oh, well. We have to, I, I don't think we know enough uh, to say of whether or not a combination of a global, of a once in a generation pandemic and a major war in Europe are, to, are going to cause Canadian house prices to finally go down um, outside of mm-hmm. Calgary, of course, where they haven't gone up in ages. Uh, but hey, uh, Maybe that's going to be it. And if they go down, then, you know, Christian Freeland will swear extra revenge. Um, that's right. Yes. But, so I, I want to talk a little bit, right? I'm moving on a little bit, right? To thinking about the sanctions, where they came from, but also, I think more importantly, what they mean for ordinary people. Um, mm-hmm. And so essentially, just to like you know, introduce the, set the table here, right? Um, we've got these sort of rounds of, of sanctions against Russia. Some of them are sanctions that have been placed for a while, ever since Crimea. Uh, these are, you know, sanctions against individuals, uh, sanctions against the defense industry, um, and, and, and so on, right? Uh, but others are sort of much bigger and much larger and have essentially amounted to cutting a great deal of uh, Russia out of the global economy. And Alex, can you talk a little bit about what it means to just cut a country out of the global economy over the space of like a football game? Yeah. I mean, so a lot of where I've been focusing on is like market stuff, like, um, you know, their debt, like whether they're going to pay their lenders, which is like a whole insane thing that um, I could talk for too long about and like isn't maybe particularly interesting for, like you said, normal people. Um, But it is, I mean, 
I think that global global leaders are like definitely taking note. Like one of the one of the interesting things that happened was that they froze the assets. Sorry about that. They froze the assets of the Russian central bank. Um, like basically any of the assets that it held overseas are just like not really accessible to it right now. Um, and that's pretty wild because they now like, it, it basically introduces like a lot of risk for other countries, which like maybe isn't, you know, I don't know, the implications are hopefully that like another country won't like, you know, go and invade someone just because, you know, for fun. But like at the same time, like imposing aggressive economic sanctions on a country like does affect their people, right? Like it's, um, I still have to read that economic warfare book, but it looks excellent. Yeah, I just want to, I just want to jump in with some lived experience yeah. and sanctions. But you know, I the first time I ever experienced firsthand uh, the res, uh, the the on the ground results, granular results of um, massive massive economic sanctions was uh, when I the first time I visited Myanmar uh, to play a show, and I spent two weeks there just basically living with a band uh you know got to got to see how they lived and it was yeah it was mind-blowing like just the inability to get basic goods uh medicine uh material for building stuff like that it was it was shocking like uh and at the same time i was i was there in yangon for two weeks seeing this sort of deprivation that um this group of people I'd become friends with live in, we would also notice that say the son of one of the junta members would drive a fucking Maserati around town every night, you know, honking his horn. <laughs> so it was, it was clear that like, uh, whatever, whatever was being intended was not, uh, was not having the desired results. Junta is still firmly in power. Uh, regular citizens, very deprived. Yeah, it seems that there's the the theory of change behind sanctions. I've never, I mean, I I I both understand and don't. I mean, on on the one hand, they are um, they are a way to it seems uh, impose costs on everybody living in a given country until they spontaneously rise up and change a policy, or until through fear of the uh, populace doing that, the sort of the government makes some kind of a policy change. Um, or they are, and that's the sort of seems to be a theory of change is uh, foreign policy, and that's worked, I think, once to get uh, South Africa to you know stop doing apartheid, and that was like a very specific you know policy that was changed. Um, and two, uh, they're also a domestic tool, right? Where you are, uh, you, it is demanded that you do something. Um, you are seen to continue to be in this. You know, interconnected uh, global economy trading with is this, uh, you know, a grieving party that is, and that, and that you know, your your citizens then watch the you know news that dutifully comes out. They say something must be done, uh, and then they're like, "Well, this is something." And, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a way to release. I mean, I'm thinking about our episode with Matt and the truckers' convoy again, and I do feel like you know it. It is this ongoing sort of wave of sanctions going back to like the annexation of Crimea on Russia has been a great release of orgone for uh, 
you know, a, a specific type of North American liberal, right? Like they feel it feels good for them to watch this happen. They feel good supporting it. Um, but it's it's not sending bombs and guns. It's, it's the it's, it's a sort of substitutional. It's a, it's a substitution effect where you're able to have, you know, an ordinary Russian stand in for um, the government or individuals within the government or the army. Um, and you buy sort of and you're just able to sort of punish this big black box called Russia. Um, and then, so before we go into sort of more of the specific sanctions, I want to and again, uh, if you listen to the, the TF where we talked about sanctions, I'm sorry I'm repeating myself, but uh, I just think that this is a particularly excellent poll from an article in N plus one called The Art of Monetary War uh, by Dominic Loyster. So it says. The short-term consequences for Russian civilians are clear. A dramatic decline in purchasing power, massively higher unemployment, shortages of key goods such as food, medicine, cars, and household appliances. But then what? As the deputy director of the CIA, David Cohen, architect of the sanctions against Iran and Russia, noted in 2019, the goal is regime change. The logic of coercive sanctions does not hold up. Indeed, the experiment with severe sanctions and trade measures erected against Iran has not led to any lasting behavioral change, let alone changes in government. Cornell historian Nicholas Mulder's recent history of sanctions, the economic weapon, makes the case in a grander scale, showing that sanctions have little to do with deterrence or compellence. In their totality, they can constitute a form of siege of attritional warfare against one's enemy civilian population. In the case of Iran, the humanitarian consequences of prolonged U.S. sanctions have been degrading, economic growth has languished, incomes have stagnated, and food prices have risen. As a result, food insecurity and malnutrition, especially among children and women, have risen, rendering a large part of the population more prone to disease. Um, as estimate by the Center for Economic and Policy Research suggests that the imposition of sanctions by the Trump administration alone resulted in 40,000 excess deaths between 2017 and 2018. And Russia has now outstripped North Korea to be the most sanctioned country in the world. Um, and so you can only wonder how many excess deaths in the Russian population are going to be attributable to us, for example, um, Ascent to do a number of things. In fact, number one, Alex, as you mentioned, uh, sanctioning their central bank, meaning they can no longer switch rubles for other for um, for other currencies, or at least where those currencies, where those countries are sanctioning them. The most important being like U.S. dollars, right? Um, because they this is how you sort of so much global trade is conducted in U.S. dollars, uh, and so they can't do that. They've been removed from an interbank messaging platform called SWIFT, which I'll ask you a little about in a sec. But also, tons and tons of companies are now self-sanctioning in anticipation of further sanctions being applied. So like Visa and MasterCard, for example, don't trade there anymore. Russia's mm -hmm. having a hard time selling gold. Very importantly, to like middle-class Muscovites who like are you know, Europhilic, IKEA has pulled out. Uh, but most importantly, <laughs> uh, is, is actually like shipping, like logistics companies like Maersk are now refusing to do business there entirely, right? Whole, yeah. And it just means like, Whatever, however many excess deaths were caused by like the the uh, Trump sanctions against Iran, um, you know we're we seem to be sort of gleefully causing that many more against Russian civilians now by imposing sanctions. What we kind of know won't work. That seems to me to not make sense uh, at all. Yeah, I think the siege comparison is a really good one. Because you are, you're basically isolating an entire country, um, you know, and I think, and of course, like, you know, we barely got cut off from, you know, various parts of the supply chain here in the U.S. and people are like having panic attacks and it's like, you know, food prices are going up, 
you know, and there's like a little bit of pain here, but like just, you know, that times like a million um, is what we're doing to Russia and what we've done to Iran. And um, it is like, it's, it's full on warfare, you know? And it's funny because again, like it does not, like you guys point out, it doesn't actually affect um, Roman Abramovich. Like he's fine, you know, like he's, he's not having trouble getting food, you know? Oh, he had to sell Chelsea, like a sad story, but like, (laughs) you know, and you can see like some initial, like, Oh, well, like maybe we are trying to gesture towards understanding this and like, the yacht seizures, but like, of course you can see the coverage of the yacht seizures and the plane seizures, like has been really, really widespread and the coverage of the like actual on the ground effects and like the, the consequences of just like cutting off an entire economy have not been, and you can almost see the, like the, uh, dare I say like manufacturing of consent for these kinds of, um, these kinds of tactics, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, to use Myanmar as an example of, again, like to back up that N plus one article, you know, that country was brutally sanctioned, uh, and Sun Tzu Chi came to power. Uh, and then, you know, some sanctions were really relieved and then there was a coup and there's more sanctions and that, and the, the junta is firmly in control of that country. Then you never, you know, you don't hear about it anymore. It's just, not a place anyone talks about. It was like, okay, we tried, we tried to do regime change. It didn't work. Uh, it's probably someone else's fault, you know. Maybe blame China. The end. And and the people, yeah, and like the people who suffer are not just yeah. It's everyone. It's people living in the countryside, uh, urban young people who thought that they were headed, their country was headed into like a Thailand style modernization, you know. But it was just completely pointless. Yeah, and it it seems like I don't know. It's it 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 seems to be responding so much to domestic pressure as well. Well, actually, we'll we'll talk a little bit about what pressure it's responding to. But before we go on, I just wanted to ask as well. Right, um, there's mu- much is being made of the uh, swift uh, interbank messaging removal system. Can you talk a little bit about what exactly that is? Sure. So, um, my gosh, it's it's basically a communication tool between banks. So. Um, if you are sending a payment from, um, let's say, a Russian bank like Sparebank to J.P. Morgan, for example, um, I, I think like generally you'd use the SWIFT system. And now they don't have that, so it's. I mean, first of all, it's it's funny because like people do like to make a really big deal about SWIFT in general, um, but like. You're, if you're J.P. Morgan, you're not supposed to be transacting with Sparebank anyway, right? So like cutting them off of Swift is saying like, oh, and, you know, you extra can't do this thing that we already said you can't do. You know, it's a little like I, I think people get a little conspiratorial about it, um, potentially because and this is a fun little like long forgotten fact. But in like after 9-11, there were a few news stories about how U.S. intelligence services had been surveilling Swift. And um, actually had started after 9-11 to start, like, using the information that they were getting from SWIFT to, like, go after people. Um, And I think 
this sort of like legacy of that news cycle is like part of the reason people can get really conspiratorial about it. But um, I don't know, as far as, as far as I can tell, cutting someone off from Swift is just like a, a shorthand way of saying like, you can't transact with us banks right. or right. yeah European banks, which again was like a rule that they explicitly stated so the Swift thing is sort of like, okay, and you can't even use our chat system, which like, okay. Are you saying, you know, yeah. they've been Uh-oh. cut off from Bloomberg chat? No. Yeah. All my, all my messages <laughs> I gone. I was going to yeah. say, <laughs> no um, IB for you. Alex, can I ask you, I wanted to ask you this, because uh, I've been following the Swift thing. Do you, is there any weight behind a couple of weeks ago, in, both India and China stepped up and, and there were articles about uh, alternate SWIFT systems. The Chinese one, I wasn't too surprised to see, but I was really surprised to see India um, offering like payment in rupees to Russia as like an alternative to SWIFT. Is there like, is that going to make any difference to, you know, the effects of cutting Russia out of SWIFT? Is that sort of like an exit strategy for them for any of the, you know, uh, side effects of being cut out of the SWIFT system? So as far as I can tell, like, not really. Um, It's interesting in what it says about India's global political positioning. Absolutely, yeah. I think that's probably the primary thing that it says, because apparently even China, and of course, like, I'm reading U.S. news, so who knows, but apparently even China isn't, like, totally, you know, going all in supporting Russia. So, like it's a little hard to say like, Oh, this is going to make it way better for them. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, so I'm not sure about the actual, like on the ground impl- implications of that. Like it could, I mean, it's a good question, but I haven't heard much about it being like, Oh, well they're going to be fine because you know, India and China have stepped up. Um, right. You know, it sort of speaks to like this whole idea that there's going to become or there will eventually be this sort of alternate global, um, like opposite political pole um, reserve currency framework and structure. Um, yeah. And a news story that sort of made the rounds here was, um, okay, the Saudis are agreeing to sell oil to China in UN, um, which, and denominate those sales in UN instead of denominating them in dollars and then having them transfer it into UN. So like, I, I mean, it could be like an, an early step on the way to that. Um, right. But in like the next five to 10 years, people are sort of like, oh, I don't really see it happening because China's currency isn't even fully convertible yet. Right. Um, so is, does that answer your question? Or? It, it absolutely does. Yeah, because I was thinking of it as like as as like almost like a precursor to like this bifurcation of global finance that people have been talking about. Um, essentially, what you just said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that there would be an alternate currency you could trade in. So I, I think it's. I mean, it's definitely possible. It's worth going into the history of dollar politics a little bit, actually, right? Where you so we sort of you we can talk about why that sort of is a threat to American hegemony, right? Where what you have is you have a system where, as you said, right, I, Alex, as you alluded to earlier, right, that 
oil oil trading is denominated in U.S. dollars, and it's been like that since after the Second World War, where it, the, even though like you know Saudi has its own Saudi, for example, has its own currency, uh, oil is still priced in U.S. dollars, which means that if you want to trans, if two countries with third currencies, so like I don't know, let's say a, uh, a British pound and a, a Saudi uh, a real want to you know want to transact for oil they'll have to do it in the, the it's priced in dollars see the the trade sort of ends up getting sort of denominated in dollars which means that the US dollar ends up being this forum where most of kind of you might like globalized wtoized capitalism comes to meet and talk to one another and sort of the the, the world that has been built right uh, especially sort of from the 1990s onwards is one where most people's standard of living depends has come has been made to depend on that flowing very evenly right and but also mm-hmm. it's had some very strange effects so for example like if you wonder why uh the UK is so insanely fucked up and why London is so insanely fucked up that's because um people transacting in dollars realized they could buy and sell things in dollars that once they left the US would never have to go back Ever. So you end up with something called the euro dollar market, which is in, in Europe, basically, you buy and sell dollars. And so, for example, the, if the trade for uh, Saudi oil, for example, happens in US dollars, it can be done by US banks with branches in London. And then they'll just get, they'll, they won't have to, they will have to be so much less, they'll face so much less regulation uh, in, in trading out here. And then you, that's how you end up like with the American, with these sort of American dollar hegemony, um, sort of causing countries that are mostly oil producing, so like Norway or, or Saudi or whatever, making more money in selling oil in dollars in European markets than they could possibly invest back in their own countries. And so that's how you end up with like these insane pools of, of, of currency that just can't really go anywhere. And so sometimes they'll get like loaned out to country, developing countries buying oil at like punitive interest rates. And so you wonder, you know, why uh, you get sort of you get so many like you know like um, um, problems with balance of payments in in Africa and stuff. And that's basically why it's because we've got this there is, we have these this two speed system of sort of international dollar politics that uh, ends up like you know creating all of these incentives that are you know you could say quite um, negative. And so we're, but this is what I was driving at here is that like, if you want to look at American um, economic as political hegemony, this dollar system underpins enormous amounts of it and also underpins the, the fact of the fact of that it created like the recycling of these petrodollars, right? You has also created sort of so much of what the global system is today. So cutting Russia out of it. And sort of creating the politicizing it more nakedly, right? Not because it was always politicized; it was always a tool of hegemony. But by wielding it so obviously, it's no longer deniable that that's the case. You might say, like, yeah, it might not happen now, might not happen in five or ten years, but you know, the um, it, it I, you would say it is it is certainly now undeniable. You know that this is this is something that the U.S. has demonstrated, U.S. And their, and their allies have demonstrated, including Canada, that they're willing to do. Um, and all this is leading up to um, sort of much talk of a uh, Russian default, um, at, meaning that they are no longer have the 
access to the dollars that they need or from the US or euro dollars elsewhere. They no longer have access to the dollars they need uh, to um, pay the coupons on their bonds. Now, this hasn't happened yet. I've read some financial news that they have, in fact, made um, the most recent dollar coupon payment. Um, but uh, it seems like they won't they won't be able to sustain that system for long. Uh, right, Alex? Yeah, I mean, people think that's like generally inevitable. Um, again, just because like, I think JP Morgan got like a special allowance to be able to transfer money, um, <laughs> like Russia's dollars from Russia to investors. Um, but I, and I do also want to circle back to what you were talking about with the history of the dollar system. Because um, let's see, I read this. I read a book by, oh gosh, it's Ben Style a while ago called The Battle of Bretton Woods. And it's very funny because like, you know, it's a very like American centric perspective, um, but it does sort of go over how the U.S. like did this on purpose in service of their interests. So like it was like a little clause in like a negotiation at the Bretton Woods conference trying to figure out how the world economy was going to work after World World War Two. Right. And um Wait, wait a minute. Wait, Alex, you're telling me that uh-huh. the country that also set up the uh, North uh, Atlantic uh, Security Alliance <laughs> after World War II to make sure that communism didn't spread to all the other countries <laughs> after the devastation of their economy and the destruction of their uh, ingrained class system. You're telling me these people also had economic designs on the world? I know, believe it or not. Crazy. But fun fact, My noodle the, guy is double who, baked. <laughs> the guy who negotiated it believed and like wrote and this came out later. He didn't like write openly about it at the time, but he kind of firmly believed that the U.S. was going to eventually have to te- team up with China and Russia <laughs> to fight uh, <laughs> global Nazism. Well, I mean, <laughs> Oh, God, like, don't, like, don't fucking threaten damn. me with a good time. You know what I'm saying? I know, <laughs> like, right? It was like, that guy thought so. Come on, guys. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, so was, no. Was, what we have to do is we have to take the existing Nazis <laughs> and integrate them into a security apparatus. <laughs> oh, Lord, yeah. Um, anyway, that guy eventually got fired. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and Red scared out of town. Um, damn. But... He's, you know, anyway, I, I thought that was a really fascinating, uh, really fascinating fact. Um, but, oh gosh, where was I going with that? But yeah, it was just a really, oh, and actually Keynes um, wanted a global, like, you know, super sovereign currency to sort of avoid the kinds of things that are happening right now. Uh, um, now, like he was also doing this in the interest of the UK, which is its, its own issue. But like, I did find that interesting because like they were in the weaker negotiating position and he was like, Hey, why don't we not have you guys run the whole thing? And obviously um, they would not put up with that, but very interesting stuff. They needed um, an Esperanto for currencies, a kind of one world yeah. currency, if you will. Ah, uh, no, you, that, that would take, I mean, how big of a reset do you think it would take to create one world currency? Come on. I don't know. Not a moderate reset. I, um, something bigger than a that. Minor? A minor? At least a, a good reset. one. 
<laughs> the good reset. It'd have to be grand. Ladies and gentlemen, the good reset. <laughs> now, hey, uh, Tim, uh, when you come to visit London in a couple of months, do you want to go get some beers down at the good reset on uh, Bermondsey Street? <laughs> No, what, what, I mean, it depends on what kind of scran they're serving up there. Oh, it's 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 scran that'll make you act the rotter, Dan. Don't worry. If it's wet scran, I'm there. Uh, that's right. Wet scran, that's the plan. But if the scran is dry, I gotta fly. Um, that's right. No, so we but we we were talking about the um sort of the the combination of like the. The, the second, uh, the second layer of sort of Im- imperial control of the of the sort of world economy, which is the the dollar system, and I think how that relates to like the possibility of you know forcing countries into default. Oof. I mean, it's interesting because Russia, for some reason, appears to like really want to still pay its dollar bonds, which I am very surprised by. Um, if you wanted any evidence of like the sort of you know, the power hegemony, I guess, of um, global financial capital. Like, as you guys say, you know, people on the ground in Russia all of a sudden, like, can't get stuff and, like, are suffering. And yet, like, the U.S. bondholders are getting paid with their dollars. Yeah. Wild to me. Um, And, I mean, it should, in theory, be, like, very easy to force them into default because, again, like, no one can trade with each other but um i don't know i don't know who's been i don't know who's been calling the treasury like listen we need this money because we don't want to lose like two billion dollars or whatever on our cds contracts because uh folks at places like pimco also do have almost two billion dollars of exposure that um to oh gosh how do i how do i describe this um and credit default swaps are like still a thing in, in sovereign bond markets, right? right? So like you can write insurance and be like, hey, I will pay you this much if this country defaults on its bonds. And like, what do you know? Some very big, pretty powerful U.S. asset managers have written a lot of insurance policies basically on Russian oh, bonds. Damn it. <laughs> Again. (laughs) Why does this keep happening? Uh, It's wild. Uh, Finance. Come on. Um, You had one job. (laughs) Do not do that. (laughs) Um, Oh, my. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because, again, like, I saw the March 16th date. I was like, okay, well, like, can't wait to write that default story. And then like magically it seems to have not really happened though. I I have to like double check and look a little closer myself. Um, But yeah, there are lots of, lots of weird things going on in, um, in Russian bond contracts. But again, like what's funny is that like, this is all uh, like hedge fund guys in New York and money managers in California who are like, you know, we care very deeply about this and it like, definitely matters for them and to be fair like the the money managers in california and some of the hedge fund guys are managing like pension money mm-hmm. right so that is like retiree money um wasn't there the case of uh i think it was the state of kentucky teachers pensions uh deeply invested in spare bank right like oh probably it might have been arkansas and i don't know that it was like a giant position overall but it was definitely more money than like either Arkansas or Kentucky or, you know, any of those pension funds should have had in Sparebank. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
And I, I think of this because Kentucky's pension funding is just absolutely tragic. Like Kentucky is is insanely underfunded. I think Arkansas is a little bit better funded, but like it's also not like a New York pension fund, for example. Right. So um, I, I do, I can't remember exactly which one, but um, yeah, lots of, lots of fun stuff here. Though I know in Canada, um, a lot of also very interesting pension funds up there. Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry, I found it. It's uh, Kentucky Teachers Retirement Fund uh, lost $3 million in selling investment in Russian bank uh, after <laughs> Spare Bank shares fell 95% the week of March 4th, so. It was Kentucky. Kablamo. Bye-bye. Yeah. Uh, well, um, basically, it, it turns out there was uh, there was quite a bit of... Um, it was... Oh, I'm wrong. Uh, I'm sorry. That number is now adjusted to $15 million. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, they can't really spare it. No, absolutely not. I mean, it, that's the other thing, right? If um, just like the, the transformation from like what you'd call defined benefit to defined contribution pension pension funds as well right like just the fact that yeah the only way to do this was to just invest in the market and just just trying to try to tie everyone into it into the fact that it would go up forever just means just you're just exposing a bunch of you know not of of you know like old people here relying on pension funds or people who will be relying on pension funds at some point to the vagaries of the global financial system which is yeah just like a bunch of guys in uh california and new york being like mm, i'm pretty sure i'm gonna write this bond insurance and that's gonna be just fine um yeah. on russia why not? yeah <laughs> guys why not um, right but it's um you know like the, it's even if like the big one so like the biggest one the canada pension plan doesn't have direct exposure to russia but like um many other sort of smaller or sectoral ones do um and and, and i think this is also sort of Moving on to this idea that, well, in, 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 in as these things sort of blow back, uh, not just on, well, blow forward, I suppose, on ordinary Russians, but also blow back on ordinary Canadians, right? Um, the overall statement of everyone except France has basically been, you must now do your duty to the war effort and be poorer. Uh, you have to shoulder this burden. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Christia Freeland said, I have to be honest with Canadians that there could be some collateral damage in Canada. Uh, in order to be really effective, in order to really have an impact, we're going to have to be prepared for there to be some adverse consequences for our own economies. And this translates into, for example, higher energy prices, uh, higher food prices, because Russia and Ukraine both are huge exporters of wheat, um, mostly directly to the developing, to the developing world, especially the Middle East and North Africa, especially Lebanon. Yeah, I just want to throw... Just want to throw in 90% of grain imports uh, for Lebanon come from Ukraine. So that's uh, that's going to be a huge issue now that the uh, this planting season is essentially out the window. <laughs> also, Belarus, major producer of potash, which is, you know, used to make fertilizer to uh, grow grain to feed these mm. places. And by and I think it's. What's what's sort of so striking is that, you know, the most sort of, you know, most aggressively like you know, neoliberalized, if you want to call them that, economies um, are just saying the the only uh, sort of answer they have to your life is going to get worse because we have to make r ordinary Russians lives worse in order to make you feel better about the TV, basically. Um <laughs> <laughs> it's been saying, well, sorry, you know, in, in the UK, your heating bills are going to double because we're so gas based here. 
uh, your food bill you know, is going to go up by maybe a factor of half. Uh, and there's nothing we can do about it. There is nothing we're going to do about it. You're just going to, you're, you are going to get the, uh, the, the, the good feeling in your tummy of having helped. Ukrainian flag in bio paying $5 a gallon at the pump. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's how I want to be, baby. <laughs> um, and it's, it's just so, I mean, I, I think it's just so fucking galling that it's like the, there are these things that we know don't work. We have very little evidence for working in terms of like, if you want to define work as, you know, avert, uh, avert deaths due to war by stopping the war, all they do is create deaths due to starvation. And we're saying in order to get that benefit, everyone in the country doing these things is going to have to tighten their belt a little bit. Um, so mm-hmm. would it surprise, well, I, I would just say, would it surprise either of you? I'd say, would it surprise uh, Dan specifically to know who the architect of the uh, sort of Western finance ministers of the especially, um, you might say, nuclear option of the economic sanctions against Russia was. Would it surprise you to know Hmm. that it was Christia Freeland? It would not surprise me to know that, (laughs) Riley, because if I, like Christia Freeland, uh, grew up steeped in a, a very specific vision of Ukraine and what the Ukrainian people are that, uh, whose ideological rat maze uh, leads to an in- inevitable final conflict with the great Satan of Russia, then uh, yeah, no, that wouldn't surprise me at all. <laughs> so this is, I mean, and this is from, from Politico, what I think it's worth quoting here. Uh, As Russian forces readied to steamroll into Ukraine, Canada's finance minister began drumming up support for a move that could be devastating for Russia's economy. Freeland, who also serves as deputy prime minister and to be honest, I mean, this is me editorializing here, is probably going to be the next prime minister. So, uh, so worry about that. Come <laughs> yeah, on, we, man. We, we have, as, as our prime minister, was someone who really, really wants an apocalyptic confrontation with Russia. Um, <sighs> Christian Freeland. Yeah, I just want to actually, I just have to jump in and, and because the, these are the times that we live in. And I, I, w- I want to just make my position on this very clear as I, I've, been, I've been extremely critical since the invasion of Ukraine started of uh, this specific person's position of power as it uh, as it relates to the North American response, uh, specifically Canada. Um, I would love it if there was someone in her position who was talking even a little bit about uh, diplomatic solutions to this, whatever they may be, whatever would stop the uh, inevitable grinding loss of life that uh, Ukraine is uh, and the Ukrainian people are headed towards. But that's just not happening. Uh, <laughs> so no, well, what we're going to do uh, is we are going to continue uh, uh, gassing up our team uh, to go for a kind of uh, maximalist position of, for example, no, not even status quo ex ante. We want to return to like you know what it was like in 1993. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, not 2013 borders. Uh, not not even that. No, nine. Sorry, excuse me. Not 2014 borders. Nope, 93. Maximum, maximum, maximum effort. Maximum uh, 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 victory, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So uh, Freeland uh, spent much of the past week quote, pushing the idea of sanctioning the central bank, said a Canadian official who spoke on a condition of anonymity. Uh, The finance minister began floating the idea that Tuesday as speculation over whether uh, Putin's military buildup was a bluff. As his intention became clear and the invasion began in earnest, Freeland then began on building some momentum behind targeting the central bank in Moscow and cutting Putin off from his billions in foreign currency reserves and his fortress balance sheet. 
And the, the article says, you know, while it is hard to say whether Ottawa's intervention was primarily responsible for its allies' change of heart, uh, the official said Freeland had made a particular appeal to um, Americans prior to the Saturday evening uh, announcement. Biden had remained noncommittal on the need for stricter measures against Russia's central bank. So we can't necessarily say who uh, if she did uh, if she was the deciding factor, but it seems to heavily imply that she was the one who pushed the button, dropping what has been referred to as an economic nuclear bomb. Uh huh. Yeah. Which tracks because you know she has been a major supporter of sanctions as as a form of uh, economic warfare against against Russia for as long as she's been in a position of power, you know, it's and and to the point where our government uh, nationally, we we apply Magnitsky sanctions to other countries. Now, this sort of, um, you know, we were talking about it before the show, Riley, like the, the, the sort of browderization, I think you could say of um trying to enforce your own particular vision of rules-based international order. And, and, and the, the idea, I think, right, that the, the, what always pisses me off about Bill Browder is, is well, uh, any number of things, but uh, chief among them is sort of how it, it is, yeah, he was, he was, so I'll, I'll start again, but what pisses me off about Bill Browder, I mean, chief among them, is just how much of the story of like, the browderization of economic warfare, the sort of the fact that, you know, the, the Magnitsky sanctions are named after his lawyer who was murdered, right? Is like, you wait, well, well, hang on. What was he there doing? I mean, Freeland wrote a book. You're, oh, no, 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 no. I can't talk about yeah. what he was there doing. He was there. He was there being a good guy. That's I mean, it. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is from, this is from the same Politico article. It says Freeland wrote the sale of the century, about the mass sell off of Soviet assets after the fall of the Berlin wall. And it quote remains a must read for those of us who still care about what the hell went wrong with the naive best intentions for Russia's forward journey. And that then goes on to favorably quote Bill fucking Browder, who was on the other side of that goddamn sale. <laughs> it's, it, it's as though they, they, I mean, usually, I mean, Western writers about the economy, or my, most writers about the economy, have a very difficult time remembering that there are buyers and sellers in transactions, right? But this is next level, forgetting that there was a buyer and a seller in that transaction. No, it just got sold off to to, to, to no one, I guess. Um, yeah. Right, and you know, I mean, just the, it comes back around to like thinking about, all right, well especially thinking about her as being behind them, if we think, well, this is going to cause an enormous amount of suffering in Russia, it's going to cause some suffering in Western countries, especially like the UK, to be honest, where we're exposed to like you know, gas and so on. Uh, and, has, and, and our governments are completely unwilling to do anything other than say it's the patriotic duty to put on a sweater. Um, and then are going to probably starve a lot of people in countries completely unrelated to what's going on, like, you know, like, like Lebanon or Egypt as well, which heavily depends on grain exports, um, not just from, you know, Ukraine, which can't, it's not being sanctioned, it just can't export because of it's being invaded, but also Russia, which can't export because it's because, I mean, there are some food carve outs of those sanctions, but I don't think they're willing to export at all. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, a, a lot of a lot of people are going to be, you know, are going to suffer because of this. And it's uh, all towards a goal that's, uh, I guess you could say, is not exactly clear. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what the goal behind these behind this is. I don't know. I mean, beyond beyond just um, manifesting this vision of world order and this specific, I think, for this one 
specific Canadian politician, this vision of uh, Ukraine, which I think is a vision that is not even shared by the majority of people, Ukrainians living in Ukraine. We, we have to remember, you know, famously quoted in Michael Ignatiev's book on nationalism, uh, Freeland's idea of the Ukrainians currently living in Ukraine is that they need to, quote, become new people. Mm-hmm. So, well, I guess, you know, that's uh, what, did, what did Thatcher say about the economy? It's the uh, the, um, the the job of it, of the the job of, um, of economics is to shape the soul. Uh, and I suppose <laughs> we know how Freeland wants the soul shaped uh, thinner specifically thinner. Yeah. A little bit thinner. Um, so uh, yeah. noting that we're just coming up up to the top of the hour here, I want to sort of bring it back around to, to Alex. Um, what do you have any sort of any any final final words, peers, peerings forward or cautions um, to our, our many fine listeners about sort of the economic complications, I guess you could say, of you know, what's going on in Eastern Europe? Wait, I'm imagining Alex a crystal ball. But coming out of the crystal ball is an old-timey <laughs> stock ticker tape. Finally, the tips. <laughs> <laughs> buy gold. No, I'm just kidding. Do not buy anything because I say so. You, hear, uh, you heard it here first, folks. Buy gold. Uh, <laughs> this is legally binding advice, yes. and you can throw me into jail if you <laughs> Legally, there's no financial advice. Um, yeah. uh, no, um, I mean, honestly, like... One thing that keeps getting me is that we are, of course, fighting like here in the U.S. Because like, you know, I this is sort of like what I've been paying attention to. We had a Fed meeting last week. They raised rates. Um, Apparently, we are going to solve all of these complicated uh, shortages and interruptions in the supply chain, which, again, like do not even affect us as much as they do, say, the U.K. or Europe. Um, But apparently we're going to solve them by making everything harder to afford (laughs) by (laughs) slowing down the economy because what could go wrong with that um nothing i mean we'll we'll see like it's interesting you know what you guys were saying about um about just policymakers and stuff because one of the things that has consistently astonished me is people being like no fly zones are fine and like uh, on one hand, we've got the like, oh, good, you know, people going nuclear with um, economic sanctions. But like as, as a New York resident and someone else who, you know, you're here just like thinking about like, are these people really like messing around with the possibility of nuclear war of like NATO getting into an armed conflict with Russia? Because because some people seem to be really like chomping at the bit for that and i just like don't understand like i've seen a couple of people on twitter and thank god twitter isn't real life but like saying like well new what nuclear conflict be that bad and i'm like yes yes it will (laughs) like even if it doesn't hit me like what are you talking about i mean i think there's two things at work right now that that are happening in tandem one is you know we talked about it a little bit at the top of the show but i think there is uh what I'd like to call the great forgetting of the lessons of the Cold War and also the great forgetting of the history of 20th century fascism where, you know, you have the same kind of people sort of, I'm thinking of, you know, the McFalls of this world. Uh, You have the same kind of people essentially saying things like, well, Stepan Bandera uh, wasn't that bad. 
Well, Hitler never killed Germans. Uh, a no-fly zone is really, it's really not that bad. I mean, look at this picture of Hiroshima. There's still a couple of buildings standing. So I think that actually, is, yeah, I think that is happening. There is that. There is this sort of final retconning of 20th century history, including mm -hmm. the Cold War and and just the insanity of the Cold War. Uh, it is, I guess, what you could call like the end of the end of history, right? And then, and then on the other hand, I I don't think you can discount the the feels because a lot of this stuff is about feels, and a lot of the feels are bad because everyone lived through two years of pandemic and saw the state that they live in completely abandon them, you know, um, at all levels, at all socioeconomic levels. So I think for some of maybe the more older people, the more older pundits. I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's kind of a necropolitical death drive where they're just like, you know what? This shit fucking sucks. Just subconsciously. They're like, yeah, I've done everything I need to do. I was ambassador to Russia, you know, made, made some great friends, drank a lot of expensive scotch. I've got this prescription Adderall uh, uh, that just refills magically. I wouldn't mind being a shadow on the wall, you know? <laughs> Vaporize like, me, baby. I have to wonder, like, <laughs> and even, like some of the younger guys who like just really like their whole thing is being like actually like child labor, child slavery isn't bad. Like a lot of those people have <laughs> yeah. been like, you know, nuclear war would not destroy the entire mm -hmm. world. Yeah. Technically, the world will still yeah. be here. And and then you know what's okay. going to happen. You know, I, we've detected several ICBMs in flight. Uh, this, uh, there's 22 minutes until the extinction of human until the extinction of the human species. We're going to raise rates by 50 basis points. <laughs> Emergency rate increase. We need to frantically <laughs> pull the lever. There's going to be a labor lever. shortage. <laughs> uh, In advance of whatever labor shortage is certain to occur, uh, we would like to. Slow That's right. Down. Well, Alex, the re the the, the reports of a labor shortage after a massive global uh, global thermonuclear <laughs> exchange are, so I good. think, in my opinion, highly exaggerated. Um, you're leaving out <laughs> mutant labor. Uh, you're leaving out people who have access to some kind of bomb shelter or uh, may possibly the New York subway system. So. Uh, I'm giving that a we'll see. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dan Kramer says bye. Um, it's also time for us to say bye. B-Y-E, that is. Uh, and that's bye. Not forever, though. Bye to you. Not forever. We'll see you next week. Um, but I want to say, Alex, thank you so much for coming on and hanging out with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was and really fun. Yeah, thank you, Alex. To you, the listener, I want to say, uh, there's a Patreon. It's for seven sweet Canadian dollars a month. Uh, you will get a bonus episode on a fortnightly basis. Uh, meaning there's an episode this week, there's an episode next week, and you can hear it, uh, whatever it may be. So uh, don't forget to do that, especially before they raise rates again. Uh, they're trying to slow down your consumption of podcasts. So all that being said, uh, we'll see you in about a week's time. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.